from the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter. It is our custom that we stand when the reading of the God's Word is being uh, part of our worship service. So would you join with me and let's stand together as we hear Christ speaking. And you will remember that last week he was speaking about the one who would betray him and that he had chosen Judas Iscariot. He did it to fulfill the scriptures and to carry out the purpose of God's redemption for the world. And so that Jesus was breaking the news of uh, his being betrayed, he was grieving in his own life. He was heartsick because he knew this betrayal would lead to the cross where he would pay for our sins. And you would think in that moment that Jesus would be out of control. Not so. John records these words for us. They are the Lord's words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Thy father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, one of the twelve, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, another of the twelve, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, do, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. This is the word of God. You may be seated. For those of you who, uh, who are not sure about these pews, uh, there are, there are uh, I guess you'd say, little stools that we use to prop up feet uh, so that your legs are a little extended up. Um, as I've, I've sat in the pews this morning and thought about it, I thought about, you know, the, the challenge at Center Church is finding a nice place to sit, but then keeping your legs high enough so you don't faint. And so... Uh, as we go through this service, I hope and pray that you're able to hear God's word, particularly as you enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit as he teaches us this morning. There is a, there is a, a saying that Benjamin Franklin, by the way, do you know who Benjamin Franklin is? Uh, we can't take that for granted anymore. Benjamin Franklin was a founding father of the United States of America. He said this, he said, in this world there is nothing uh, certain but death and taxes, Death and taxes. Would you say amen to that? 
Yeah, death and taxes. Uh, you know, some of you are probably very savvy. You can get out of paying some taxes that you normally would have paid. In fact, there is a law that says if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. But somehow with the tax system and the tax codes, uh, there always seems to be loopholes about how to get around things. Uh, I remember when, uh, when there was one presidential candidate who said, let's just get rid of all this and have a flat tax on everyone. I thought, man, what a great idea. Wouldn't that just be so simple? You, you make this much money, you give this much to the government, sign it, send it away, and that's it. That was all that would be it out. Well, like anything else in this life, nothing can be simple, can it? Nothing is simple. Nothing. And so when you think about these words that Jesus gives, he comes to give us words of comfort because we live in a chaotic world. I, I don't know if you've thought about that. But one of the things I find surprising even today is how people think about death. And I don't mean people who believe in Christ. I'm talking about people who are outside of the faith. And so in so many ways, our culture does not want to deal with the problem of why death exists, but even more emphatic, what happens after you die. And so there are all kinds of folklore and fable and myths about what happens after you die. And the Bible is very clear that death entered the world through sin. Just as Adam and Eve disobeyed God and death entered the world, and so all of humanity is now suffering under the age of death we now live in, every human being will die. Every person who has breath will face death. Have you thought about that lately? Well, it's, that's the context of what's happening in this passage is that Jesus is facing his death. And it is the death not only of his life that will be coming, it is the death of the dreams of the disciples who dreamed, dared to dream that he was the Messiah, and their expectation was that he would come and deliver them from the Roman oppression that was always evident from morning to night in their lifestyle. In fact, it was the death of their hopes because everything they had hoped in was getting ready to be hung on a cross. And it's in that vein that Jesus begins to address this particular thought in their minds. When things are chaotic, who do I trust in? Because it will get chaotic. Did you notice that in verse 1? The verse says, do not let your heart be troubled. I don't know if you've thought about what a troubled heart is like, but I can think of no picture word more powerful that that gives us an image of a troubled heart is seeing the devastation that happened in Florida when Ian came on shore. Have you seen the pictures? Have you seen the complete devastation and destruction? And you look at people and you think, how in the world do you live through that? And yet as you go and hear reports of people, the people who survived that, what are they saying? We're going to rebuild. We have hope. We have hope. I think it's a, an incredible uh, uh, affirmation of the human spirit that somehow we will press on. But let me tell you, when it comes to this, to this overwhelming fear we have of death, there is no one who can tell us it's going to be okay. If you've lost loved ones, you know that. There's nothing okay about it. And so Jesus gives us this morning... Five words to comfort us. Five words to comfort you. 
in the fact that you're going to have to pay taxes and you're going to have to face death. Notice first, he deals with the fear. In verse 1, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Why does he say that? Well, that word troubled talks about not being worried. Do not become upset. Don't let, don't let the, the things that happen in your life rob you of the security that you belong to God. And God loves you. And because you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, God can even take the wicked, evil things of the world and use them for good in your life. When you think about that, you don't have to look very far. You go back to Genesis. Look at a man named Joseph. What happened to him? He got into a little sibling rivalry with his brothers, thrown into prison, then sold into slavery, then given to people in Egypt to abuse, and he was blessed by God in such ways that God raised him up. And when it was all over and said and done at the end of Genesis, when he was, the one, when he was like a prime minister of Egypt in a very powerful position, having the power of life and death over the very people who sold him into slavery, he tells them what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he recognizes God's grace in his life. You see, this is the power of the cross. It is the reminder for us that God in Christ is for us, not against us. And so no matter what you're suffering today, what we fear, or the things that are troubling you in spirit, the things that are wiping out your life, they will not have everlasting power over you. Why? Because the one who is in you has an everlasting power that will not fade or be destroyed. Peter writes in the first letter, he says that we have, a, we have a salvation that is kept for us in heaven where it cannot spoil or rust or fade. Do you hear this? Do you hear this? So in the midst of your fear of what you're fearing this year, we're getting ready to get into an election and you're going to hear a lot of fear. Turn on your TV. You're going to hear a lot of advertisements that if you don't elect this person, the world's going to come to an end. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't matter who is elected, who is the king and lord of all. It is, is Jesus. And therefore, we do not have to worry, do not have to fear. God is for us. That's what Jesus is really emphasizing in that second part of verse 1. He says, you believe in God. That's right. Everybody believes in God, don't they? Sure. But notice he says, but trust also in me. Why? Because he is God. He's God in the flesh. You see, it's not enough to believe there is a God because that, that God is the God of our imaginations. We cannot know God unless he revealed himself to us and he has completely and fully revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you open your Bible and you begin to read Christ's words, these are not his words as a man. They are God's words. That's what he says in this passage. Notice the second thing that not only Jesus deals with our facing our fear, he goes on to talk about encouraging our faith in him, our faith in him. This is where the linchpin of all of John's gospel has been written. He has written this gospel to you that you might believe, you might trust, you might put your whole weight, your whole assurance that Christ is who he says he is. There was a... a book written by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter, and in it he said you have to come to one of three conclusions about Jesus when you read the Bible. Either he was a liar, 
a lunatic or who he said he was. And everyone must make that decision. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe in me. Why? Because I go to prepare a place. Notice in verse 2 how he puts it. He says, my father's house has many rooms, and if that, were, if that were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Isn't that powerful? A place, yes. The Father has prepared a place for you. There will be various rewards that God will give. In fact, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 16, 27, that when we stand before God, we are going to be rewarded. We're going to be rewarded by the Father for where we trusted in him instead of vacillating. Did you know that? It's going to be like, it's going to be like an ice cream sundae. Have you ever been to Ben and Jerry's and gotten an ice cream sundae? You, you can pick out like three different flavors of ice cream. Man, and that's great, isn't it? Three different flavors. Then they'll ask you, Do you like, would you like some walnuts or some cherries? And say, yeah, yeah, walnuts, cherries, that'd be great. And you put that on there and you think, man, it can't get any better. And then they pull out this can of real cream and they say, would you like some whipped cream? And you're like, oh, yes, put it on there. Oh. That's the cream that Jesus is offering to us. The cream of his promise and the encouragement of our faith that not only that God has prepared a place for you, but he has been truthful enough to tell you. Titus 1, verse 1, for chapter 1, verse 2, Paul reminds Titus, God cannot lie. He keeps his promises to you. He keeps his promises to you. And in light of that, he has gone ahead to prepare a place for us so that when, when that time comes where we have to face our death, we do not have to fear. Why? Because God doesn't lie. But even more glorious is what's going to happen beyond our death, and that is when he will come and he will raise those who have passed away from this life. And those who are left living will see him. And they, in that moment, will be transformed. And the Bible says, and we who have this hope in him will be like him. You say, that's just too marvelous to believe. Yes, it is. But Jesus says, believe it. Because I said it. Well, if then Jesus is trying to encourage their faith, what other words of comfort does he give to alleviate their fear? He goes on in the third part of this to talk about dealing with their frustration. And there is frustration wherever there is faith. Did you notice that? There is frustration wherever there is faith in Christ. Why do I say that? Because following Christ is a self-denying lifestyle. It is a lifestyle that says, I will put Christ first and not myself. I will please God and no other. And to do that, you literally have to die to yourself and take up the cross and follow Christ. And so to follow Christ means I may have to surrender the autonomy that I want to have over my life. It may mean I have to surrender how I look at my marriage. Instead of it being something that serves me, I am to serve my spouse. 
It may be I have to look at my job in a different way. Instead of it being a place where I just make money, I look at it as a place where I serve God in serving others. You see, there's a whole different world, world of thinking concerning what it means to follow Christ. And yet when you do that, when you endeavor as a Christian to follow Jesus Christ in this world, you will find times of frustration because there are doubts and fears we still have. It's what happened in verse 5 when, P when Thomas said to Jesus, 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 what, what are you talking about? Look in verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Who knows what was going through Thomas's mind at that point? It could have been doubt. It could have been a deception. Maybe he, maybe he was feeling betrayed by Jesus because Jesus wasn't going to establish the kingdom of God on the earth like he, it was promised in the Old Testament the Messiah would do, which is yet to come. But Thomas obviously felt incredible frustration at that time. It could have been he could have been not only felt deceived, he could have had his own doubts. It's not the first time you hear Thomas doubting, is it? After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to many, except Thomas wasn't there, what happens the next time they're together in the upper room? They tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And what does he say? I won't believe it until I touch his hands and his side. Isn't that interesting? How would you like to be known when you get to heaven as doubting Robert? Hmm? Would that be something that you'd wear as a crown? And yet the Lord was so compassionate to Thomas, even after the resurrection, he appeared to him and said, See, Thomas, touch, touch my hands, my side. Believe. And Thomas fell to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, You believe now, blessed are those who will never see. And they believed, Blessed are you. See, one of the things that Jesus deals with in our frustration is that when we have times of frustration in faith, it's really a time for our faith to be strengthened, not weakened. James teaches us in his letter that the trials that come in our faith are there to purify our faith in Christ. You've been going through a trial these days, dealing with a sin you seem to have a struggle with. Don't you realize God is in the midst of it? And he wants to purify you and clean you. Powerfully, fourthly, Jesus deals with the words of comfort in verse, verse 6, where he deals with what it means to follow him. Notice, notice in verse 6, it really is quite interesting where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, not a life. The article, the truth, the way, the life. Why does he put it that way? Well, interestingly, he says, no one, now get this, no one comes to God the Father except through him. You want to turn away from Christ and follow some other way? There is no other way to have peace with God. 
you want to leave this place and say, okay, I don't need Christ. I don't need him at all. I can live my life and be good enough to go to heaven. Guess what? You will never be able to attain the perfection that God demands of those who are in his presence. You need a savior. You need someone who can wash your sins and forgive you and cleanse you and prepare you for heaven. You need Jesus. This is why it's so important that you understand in verse 6 that Jesus is making an extremely exclusive claim and it is very offensive to those who are perishing because those who are perishing and don't believe in Jesus say, I am a good person. I don't need Christ. And yet the person who comes to salvation says exactly the opposite. I'm someone who can never live up to God's standards. And there's nothing I can do to remove the stain of sin in my life. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. It comes to that final, that final wonderful word of comfort where he reveals the Father. Do you, do you recognize in the world how many religions there are? How many ways people endeavor to try to find God? I remember growing up in the 1980s, and some of you don't remember this. You're too young. But there was a, a, a movement in California where basically people believed in animism. And what that means is that the spirit, God the spirit, just lived in everything. He lived in the trees. He lived in the rocks. He lived in the brooks and the streams. And so a, a scheme came up where somebody had this great idea of how to make money. They began to produce what were called pet rocks. Have you ever heard of them? And they would take the rocks and they would polish them and then they'd sell them for <laughs> incredible amounts of money. And you, you just think, surely no one would buy those things. Right? I mean, you could just go back in your ba out backyard and pick up a rock, right? I mean, that's just as good as any other rock. But yet they would say, and when you get this rock and you put it in your pocket, pocket you'll feel the aura of the spirit within it. And it will resonate with your heart and give you this feeling of security and comfort. By the way, did any of y'all buy one? Don't, don't admit it. But you were tempted, weren't you? Kind of reminds me when you see some of these preachers on TV that say, if you'll just send us this much money, we'll send you this cloth. And the minute you touch this cloth, Jesus will bless you. Really? See how bad that kind of theology is? Jesus exposes it. He says, look, if you want to know the Father, who do you come to? You come to him. And that's why they were killing him. Because he made the claim to be God. And it is still the reason why Many Jews will not talk to you about Jesus because Jesus was a good teacher, a good man. He has revealed God's word to many people, but we will not bow the knee to him because he claimed to be God. And he does. Well, look, look for yourself. If you go to the verse, verse 7, 
He says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father. That'll be enough. Show us the father, Lord. And Jesus said, have I been with you this long that you don't recognize who I am? Don't you believe, verse 10, that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. What works? Remember the last miracle Jesus did in John's gospel was raising Lazarus from the dead? He'd been dead over three days. Medically, that would be impossible. And yet with one word, Lazarus, actually, excuse me, almost pulled a profile. Not one word, with one phrase, Lazarus, come out. And he walked out. Well, if I was there, I'd believe it, but that's just too fanciful to believe. No, if you were there, you wouldn't have believed it either. Because the problem is not the position of where you are, it's, it's the place of your heart. You see, if you don't believe in Christ, the real problem is you have a heart of unbelief and you need to be saved from the darkness that God came into this world to deliver you from. And see, that's the glory of this. That Jesus so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, what I want this life, what do I have to do? You have to give up your life. What do you mean? Jesus said, you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you will have eternal life. So that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. To the world, it's foolishness. It's crazy to do what we're doing here. The world looks at it and says... There's no value here whatsoever. But for us who believe, it is the power of God at work in us. Isn't that glorious? God is at work in you. And these words of comfort have been given to you that you might not walk in fear. That you might have your faith built up. That you might deal with the frustrations that come with walking after Christ in a world that doesn't believe in him. And learning what it means to follow him. To trust him. To know him. And most of all, here's what eternal life is. John tells us this in the sixth chapter. This is eternal life. That you come to know God. And the one he has sent. You have eternal life. And you don't have to wait till you die to have it. You have it now. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last hymn. Would you join with me as we sing? Uh, we're going to be singing, Oh, how he...